There we go. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizal. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Today is Tuesday, the 16th of January. Yesterday, the 15th, was Martin Luther King Day. Uh, So today... Uh, A day late, granted, but uh, that's the way holidays work. We're going to talk about uh, a key and actually often overlooked part of Dr. King's legacy, his anti-poverty activism in the late 1960s, uh, and actually all through the 1960s, his call for a guaranteed income for all Americans. Right. I mean, there's a lot of interest in this idea of a universal basic income now, and there are pilot programs popping up all over the world. But we wanted to use this opportunity to check in on how some of those programs are going and how guaranteed income is connected to the idea of economic justice. So here to make us smart about this is Stacia West, director of the Center for Guaranteed Income Research at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So first, some definitions. What is guaranteed income? And is that different from this term we hear um, thrown around a lot, UBI, universal basic income? Thank you for asking that. Yes, those are terms that are used sort of interchangeably, however, perhaps erroneously. Uh, So a universal basic income is, well, exactly what it sounds like. It's universal in that it would apply to any person uh, living in a specific area, a resident, right? Um, Not necessarily related to income or any sort of personal identity or having kids or not having kids, right? Everyone would receive this universal basic income in which you receive an unconditional cash transfer typically every month. Whereas a guaranteed income, as Dr. King spoke about, is really a targeted um, universal basic income, if you will, um, where as a result of perhaps your income level, um, your family size or status, you receive that recurring cash transfer on a monthly basis. Quite frequently, we see around $500 to $1,000 per month recurring 18 months to 24 months. Hmm. And to be clear, it's no strings attached, right? You, it doesn't come with you got to spend it here or there. Absolutely. One of the, the grounding philosophies of guaranteed income is that we we know, uh, as humans ourselves, right, that we can make the best decisions for our families. And so uh, the idea is an unconditional cash transfer. So if, you know, a family needs help uh, over the month affording groceries, they can do that. Or, you know, they need to repair a car, they can do that, need to go see grandma, even you can spend the money on that. Right. So what did Dr. King have to say about this idea? So Dr. King wrote in the subject of his last book that the response to poverty in the U.S. was both piecemeal and pygmy, and that to realize true economic justice, we must have a guaranteed income. So that's really the launching point from which this new movement of guaranteed income have started, is how can we remit the social contract to better realize the economic justice that Dr. King had envisioned? Okay, so there's a long time between Dr. King and today, and and Dr. King talked about this. Others have off and on throughout the decades, but really it's only gotten traction, I'm winging this here, like the last 10-ish years. First of all, is that right? And second of all, how come? You're correct, Kai. Really, in the past 10 years, we see what we consider to be uh, the third wave of the movement for guaranteed income. So what happened between the 1960s and really the early aughts? Um, well, neoliberalism, of course, and austerity measures as it, as it comes to addressing uh, inequality across um, much of the developing world. 
Um, so what's happened to build this momentum, I would really attribute to a couple of things. We can't deny the work done by academics um, as well as welfare rights organizers in the 1990s to keep the idea of guaranteed income alive. And that happened largely through advocacy efforts and convening of conferences, um, but became a real practicality in 2017-2018 um, with Mayor Michael Tubbs, then of uh, Stockton, California, uh, creating the Stockton Economic Empowerment demonstration, which got a lot of national traction. I was the, the PI or investigator on that study, as well as Andrew Yang's run and popularization hmm. of the idea of universal basic income. That then That's gets right. coupled with a COVID-19 pandemic, right? And so then we have these unconditional cash transfers that are rolled out to nearly all Americans, those stimulus payments. So I think we see now there's this around, I think, 150 different programs going on across the country. We know how to do it. Um, and we know some early outcomes from these studies. So what do we know so far? Sure. So I say very early outcomes because many of these uh, programs are just now concluding and we're just now finding results. So what have we seen? We see decreases in symptoms of mental health issues, right? So reductions in psychological distress. We see some positive health outcomes, people reporting that they have fewer health limitations, that they have more energy, that they have less fatigue. Um, importantly, we see no labor market impact. So we see that people are engaging with the labor market uh, in a way that works for themselves and their families, be that uh, working full-time, part-time, or as a caregiver. Um, and then additionally, that people really do spend their money on the needs of their families. So the largest expenditures that we see in these programs go toward first food and groceries, and then second household goods. So those big box stores like Target or Walmart, where we you know frequently buy the things that we need for our families, that's how people spend guaranteed income. I think it says something, actually, that, that two people whose jobs it is to know what's going on in politics in this economy had forgotten about Andrew Yang and his run. I, know, right? just, just, I, heard, I heard Kimberly go, oh, yeah. And I was, <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. Um, so, so, look, it's gotten some incremental um, popularity, and there have been studies. I guess the question is, given now... Number one, the current state of political dysfunction in this country. But number two, renewed attention, as will surely happen in an election year on debt and deficit. Where, where does this go from here? I will say we rolled out the child tax credit, the expansion of the child tax credit in a time where we had pretty similar economic or, and political dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Right. That may just be how we, we would characterize these past six years. Um, so we know that it's possible and it's really just a matter of will. Are we willing uh, to support a program like the CTC that we know cut child poverty in half and had tremendous outcomes for families? Right. Or or are we willing to to support economic and social policy uh, that further lays bare the worst that capitalism has to offer uh, among those that really hold it up? Hmm. You know, to bring it back to Dr. King, people like to bring up lots of the things that he said and lots of his messages often for individual political point scoring and whatever. But why not this? Why doesn't this sort of portion of his work get as much attention as the rest of his work? I think this issue is politically fraught simply because if, if we make the assertion that perhaps just by virtue of being human, um, you should be able to support your, your basic needs. 
And that should be disconnected from work. If we make that admission, then we also have to admit that there is something fundamentally flawed with our current economic system, such that we would even have to imagine such a thing. I think perhaps that is part of the reason it's not talked about too frequently. Hmm. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Stacia West, the director of the Center for Guaranteed Income Research at the University of Pennsylvania. Certainly made me smarter about this. Appreciate mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I mean, it gets so political so fast. That's the thing with UBI and, and guaranteed income, you know? Yeah, and I think it, it also ties into sort of like stereotypes about, you know, laziness and, yep, and yep. those things. And, and all of the research that comes out of these things seems to show that people still want to work. And, you know, what's fascinating is during the pandemic when people were getting those payments, you didn't hear this narrative about it being, no, you know, people just exactly trying right. to get a free ride or whatever. And it was because it was, you know, so many more people right. were getting it across all different, you know, groups and income, not all income levels, but many more Most, income yeah. levels and things like that. And this idea of <laughs> there's this underlying narrative that comes up in so much political discourse, whether people say it out loud or not, is that poor people deserve to be poor. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And that they've done something that makes them deserve it almost as a punishment, even though so much evidence runs counter to that. But it's sort of this thing existing, you know, that people don't necessarily say out loud, although sometimes they do. But whatever. Yeah, sometimes they do. Look, the other thing about this and, and just in the COVID thing, we had sort of a real life experiment, right? We had a natural experiment mm -hmm. in two things. One is modern monetary theory, which is a whole different thing. But the other one is... Um, UBI, because people got so much um, help from the government that amazing mm -hmm. things happened. Poverty went down. Overall, poverty rates went down. People were healthy. I mean, it was all of these things happened. And now it's like, yeah, no, we're done. You know? Yeah. Like, just kidding. <laughs> just right, kidding. Right, right. Um, but I'll actually have more on that last point after the break. But before we get to the break, uh, we would love to hear what you all think of guaranteed income or universal basic income. Pick your choice. Mm -hmm. um, how did the pandemic cash assistance impact you and, and your family, if it did at all? Uh, we are at 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART, and we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. 
Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. We are back with the news. Kimberly Adams, you go first. Yes. So we were just talking before the break about the expanded child tax credit that happened during the pandemic that lifted so many children out of poverty. I mean, it was astonishing the way that the data immediately reflected fewer children went hungry, uh, fewer children, you know, were existing in poverty. Families were generally benefiting as a result, particularly low income families. And there was a ton of data to show that this helped poor kids. And then the program expired and Congress let it expire. And there has been this ongoing fight on Capitol Hill over Democrats specifically trying to renew that child child tax credit. And Republicans wanted to renew this set of corporate tax cuts. And the Democrats basically said, we're not going to do it unless you give us the child tax credit. And so this has been going back and forth for, I think, almost a year now. And over the weekend, they've reached a deal on this. And uh, as Catherine Rampell puts it in her opinion piece, Congress is about to do something amazing, agree to invest in kids. And so she says, for more than a year now, legislators have been hashing out a trade. Republicans wanted to renew a slew of corporate tax breaks that, breaks that had recently expired. In exchange, Democrats demanded an expansion of tax credit to slash child poverty. Kids deserved at least as much as corporations, Democrats argued. So the haggling worked, and I'm skipping ahead here. So this deal will include roughly $33 billion in business tax break and about the same amount in expansions to the child tax credit, plus about $13 billion for some smaller measures related to housing, natural disasters, etc., and it looks like this is going to be paid for, and most tax cuts generally are not paid for. But one of the things that they're doing to get the money for sort of both of these things is to wind down a program that really had been used for a lot of fraud, this employee retention credit uh, that came that they developed during the pandemic, where basically employers, if you didn't lay off your employees, you could, during the worst of the pandemic, you could get a credit on your taxes because you kept people on your payroll. And tons of people scammed this program. And so they're basically going to wind that down. And it supposedly is going and increase the fines for people they catch doing fraud. And that's supposed to offset some of these costs. And so the deal has been announced. It has not passed. Um, but it seems to have some bipartisan support and perhaps this Congress will actually get something done, you know, in the time while they're trying to not let the government shut down. But perhaps he's doing a lot of work in that sentence. That's all. That's you all know, I, I feel like given how long this has been in the works, the, they would not be strategically releasing it if that didn't have no, some fair. hope of going anywhere. Because um, that would just make all the parties involved look bad if they made such a big to-do about it and then it fell flat. Unless it's, you know, another attempt to make the sort of far right of the Republican Party look like obstructionists, which they might, but, yeah. you know. Ooh, boy. Anywho. Okay. 
I've got two. A, qu- a quickie and a th- I'm sure that's my job in this podcast, as you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I've got two. One's a quickie and one's uh, just a tad bit longer. The first is a piece out of Bloomberg today, the headline of which is Elon Musk pressures Tesla Tesla's board for another massive payday. The body of the piece says that... <laughs> Before Elon Musk is going to let Tesla become more of a leader in robotics and artificial intelligence, he wants the board of directors of that company, which is in his back pocket, to give him 25% control of the company. Now, Mr. Musk had a huge amount of control of Tesla before he spent $44 billion to buy Twitter and burn it to the ground. I just think it's really interesting that now he's like, no, 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 you need to help me out some more, Tesla. You need to help me out some more. I mean, come on. Come on. Yeah. Come on, come I, on, come on. I'll be, it'll be interesting if they actually yeah, do it. Yeah, we'll see. Um, we'll see. We shall see. Uh, yeah. yeah. What's the other one? The other one is uh, news out of Davos, the World Economic Forum, which uh, for uh, various and sundry reasons, uh, we don't cover a lot on Marketplace. Uh, most of uh, those reasons are that it is uh, a lot of um, talking and not much action. Here's a really interesting thing that happened. Uh, it started yesterday, I guess, Davos did. Um, the Chinese delegation is there in force. There's a lot of them. And the Premier Li Qiang made a speech uh, yesterday, late yesterday or early today. I, I don't, I have my time zones confused. In which he said that mm. the Chinese economy grew 5.2% last year. That's actually front-running his own statistic department, which isn't supposed to come out with that number until tomorrow. But the really interesting part about this is that that would be really good growth for China. And as we've talked about on Marketplace and on this podcast, I believe China has been having some troubles, right? Foreign investment. <laughs> has cratered since the pandemic and zero lockdowns. Uh, Property uh, sector there, both residential and commercial, is in deep, deep trouble. We've talked about Evergrande and some of the other companies. So the idea that they can grow at 5% is really interesting. It's also, honestly, a good thing for the planet, not the planet like global warming-wise, back up, Mm -hmm. don't don't at me, Mm -hmm. people, right? It's a good thing for the global economy, for everybody, because China is the second biggest economy in the world. And if it slumps, we all slump. So with the large grain of salt that comes with all Chinese economic statistics, Chinese economy seems to be doing okay. And that is, generally speaking, a good thing. I love the Wall Street Journal article you linked to uh, has this line, you know, uh, The uh, the question is, uh, let's see, where does it say? The question is whether global firms are buying it. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Look, and that's totally fair, right? Because you, you do, there is some jeopardy and peril in investing and going to do business in China, right? We've talked about intellectual property theft. There's the Byzantine regulations. There's the fact that not many people are there right now, foreign company-wise. So, you know, it's tricky. It's tricky. It is indeed. Yeah. Okay, that is it for the news. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right, last week we were talking about movies, scary movies, and how we don't do them, (laughs) me especially. Kimberly, you know, less so than me. Here's what we got. Attempting. Yeah. Hi, this is Dee from Lawton, Oklahoma. If you've got a really good imagination, you don't need to be feeding it with that stuff. Secondly, (laughs) isn't the world scary enough? I mean, isn't everyday reality scary enough? That's why I, you know, even though I can watch scary, I usually don't, just for sanity's sake. Thanks for making us smart. Have a good day. The world is, in fact, scary enough. Yes. Perfectly said. Yes. 
and and I think that bit about imagination is key because like I'm a big sci-fi fantasy person. I read a ton of sci-fi fantasy books when I was younger. I have a very vivid imagination and can catastrophize and come up with worst case scenarios very quickly in vivid detail. So yeah, I don't need to be feeding <laughs> <laughs> zombie scenarios into my brain any more often than necessary yeah. for sure. <laughs> All right, before we go, we are going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer comes from historian Thomas Jackson, author of the book From Civil Rights to Human Rights, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Struggle for Economic Justice. When I began researching Dr. King's ideas in 1986, I believed James Farmer he claimed that his generation of civil rights leaders lacked an economic program that might have met the crises of unemployment and concentrated poverty that overtook black America in the 1970s. The book I published two decades later revealed a much more radical King. By 1966, King was denouncing America's poverty prisons. Poverty wasn't a paradox. It was profitable. Poor people weren't exiled into lonely islands. They were put to work at low wages. We well remember King's I Have a Dream speech today, but how many of us remember that the March on Washington demanded what today would be a minimum wage of $20? This is a King who envisioned not just more war on poverty and less war in Vietnam, but a program much more far-reaching and concrete than anything I knew about then. Yeah, his economic, Dr. King's economic legacy is way undersold, right? Way undersold. Yeah. And you know, the especially the work he was doing with the sanitation workers mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, there are so many messages that get lost in the mix because people want to only talk about the nonviolence mm -hmm. part mm -hmm. and not the radical economic, mm -hmm. let's turn this system on its head part of his work. So, yep. So with that, uh, we're out of here. Send us, though, if you would, your answer to the Make Me Smart question. The phone number is 508-827-6278, 508-U-B-S-M-A-R-T. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Charlton Thorpe with Mixing Down Later by Mingxing Chikwan. And a big welcome to our new intern, Talia Menchaca. Mentality and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Mercy Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital, marketplace vice president, and general manager is Neil Scarborough. There we go. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.